Please open your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Tonight we study verses 1 to 14. Second Chronicles chapter 24, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters, After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord. And he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had also used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the Baals. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord, and Proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the priests and all the people rejoiced, all the princes and all the people rejoiced, and brought their tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought into the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, The king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord." So those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada, and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings, and dishes for incense, and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. May God be praised through the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father, we pray now that you would speak to us. The reason you have this in the Bible is that we would think about these things, that we would become wise, that we would walk in your ways, and we pray your blessing on us as we do, particularly that blessing that makes us zealous for your house. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Each week in most churches, deacons will pass through the congregation. They'll take up the offering. Or, I think increasingly, containers are placed in the outside the sanctuary for offerings to be left. Now, these offerings provide financial support for the work of the church, and yet the impact of the church offering goes far more than concerns of money. How the congregation gives and what the church does with what the, is given, those things say much about the church's spiritual soundness. Moreover, beyond the financial support involved, giving to the church matters to the Lord. As Paul commented 
God loves a cheerful giver. Well, Second Chronicles 24 begins the record of three consecutive kings, Joash, his son Amaziah, and his grandson Uzziah, each of whom began their reigns well but ended poorly. And these accounts further highlight the results of good versus bad counsel that is given to the kings. Now, Joash has another formulaic introduction that gives details, and, and this one highlights the best of counselors, his uncle, the high priest Jehoiada, through whose valor the king's life had been saved and his throne restored. We saw that in the previous passage. Look at verses 1 to 3. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. And Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. And so Jehoiada not only set young Joash on the throne, but he helped him to get off to the best possible start. What a ministry that is. And so influential was this godly leader that we're told that so long as he lived, the king did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to see that that's a rather ominous statement for later on in the chapter. But this was the effect of his counsel and influence. And he provided Joash with two wives, and through them he had sons and daughters. Verse 3, now, not only are wives and children a sign of God's blessing, that's fairly common in the whole Old Testament, but here we have a situation where the royal line had been devastated by evil queen Athaliah, so there's a desperate need for new heirs. Matthew Henry notes the blessing that comes through loving, godly parents and mentors he says it's a happy thing for young people when they are setting out in the world to be under the direction of those who are wise and good and faithful to them as Joash was under the influence of Jehoiada. Now we should especially, we're reminded in this passage, we should especially value wise counsel when it comes to the vital matter of choosing a marital partner. Matthew Henry writes, this is a turn of life which often proves either the making or marring of young people. It should be attended to with great care. Well, Jehoiada's example and instruction further inspired the young king with this noble ambition, namely that he would restore the temple buildings from the damage that had been done to them in recent years. Joash, you remember, had actually grown up in the temple complex. He was hiding in the house of the high priest. That was on the temple grounds. He would have been fully aware of its poor physical condition. The house of God had suffered neglect under the ungodly reign of his grandmother, Athaliah. But moreover, we read that her sons, which probably refers to her followers and generals, they may have been sons, though, that would have been three relationships we don't know about. Her sons or followers had desecrated the temple and absconded its sacred vessels to take to their temple to Baal. Now, the Hebrew word for restore, they wanted to restore the temple. That word also means renewal. And we should take Joash's project as a sign of spiritual renewal under the restored house of David. Now, despite the worthiness of this project, it did not advance expeditiously. He, in verse 5, had called in the priests and Levites and said to them, Go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year and see that you act quickly. But they did not act quickly. Now, there's a number of explanations for the priests and the Levites' failure to follow through that are given by commentators. Some would say they're corrupt, all they cared about was themselves. Other was that they were spiritually lethargic. 
I think it's more likely, however, that these clerics spread out all over the nation simply had other, other priorities than this temple, this building account, the capital campaign going on in the nation's capital. We don't know when Joash gave the order, but he, he may have been young at the time and he might not have had that much respect. Besides, the priests and the Levites had their own families and ministries to support. Now, I think it's fair to say that ministers in the church today are often not the best administrators. And even today, fundraising drives can take much longer than expected. Richard Pratt suggests that there was conflict. I think that may be right here. There's conflict between the royal and the temple personnel over the funding of the temple. The Levites expected the crown to pay for the temple repairs rather than demanding that they raise the funds for his project. In short, this situation probably records the kind of squabble over the church budgets that are so common even today. Well, after a while, in 2 Kings 12, 6, says it was in his 23rd year as king, so it may have been quite a while, uh, Jehoiada, or Joash calls Jehoiada in, the high priest. He wants an explanation. Verse 6, why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? Now, Joash would have been 30 years old at this time, and this reproach may suggest that he wanted to assert himself over his now aged uncle. And the solution they devise is considered by scholars as a compromise, a compromise intended to avert a showdown between the crown and the clergy. And here was a compromise, verse 8, so the king commanded and they made a chest and set it outside the gate of the house of the Lord. Now, recording this event many centuries later, the chronicler is probably wanting to remind the religious establishment of their financial obligations. Well, according to this agreement, verse 9 says that Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bored, this is actually Second Kings 12, verse 9, so we have a parallel account with some new details. This is the king's version. Jehoiada, the priest, took a chest and bored a hole in the lid of it and set it beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. And so no longer would the priests and Levites out in the villages, would they be the ones who would, who would actually gather the money, but the people would make pilgrimages to the temple, and they would put their offerings in this chest. Second Kings twelve sixteen notes that the priests still received their support from the money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings, while the rest of the offerings were used to repair the temple. Now that may be an insight again into where the conflict was. That the, the Levites, their livelihoods, their feeding their families relied on the offerings of the people. They didn't want to give those up, understandably. So it's worked out. The king will get the money he wants. The Levites will still have the support that they need. Well, the temple repair funding plan that's devised here by Joash not only was successful, but it, it provides elements that are a model for Christians and for churches today. I want to point out four features of their giving. And the first is that they gave in accordance with God's command. Secondly, they made their offerings as an act of worship to the Lord. Thirdly, they gave willingly rather than under compulsion and fourth, their giving was cheerful as the Lord desires us to be. Let's look at those four features that ought to be seen among us. 
Well, first, Joash urges, Joash urges the Levites, verse 6, to bring in the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, which was used in the Exodus for the tent of testimony. Now, this tax refers to the half-shekel offering that was to be made by each Israelite whenever a census was taken as a, an expression of thanks for the atonement the Lord has given, but also to provide support for the tabernacle during the Exodus. This is described in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 to 16. And Joash takes that principle and he applies it to the similar obligation, which he argues, I think correctly, for the people to provide support for the restoration of the temple in his time. In fact, during the later time, the time when the Chronicler's writing, in the time of Nehemiah, there was a new national covenant. They were regrouping again. And when that is done in the late late, late 5th century, uh, this temple tax is incorporated yet again. The people promise that they will do the very thing Joash is asking them to do as commanded by the Lord. Now, the Christian corollary to the Mosaic temple tax is the tithe. The word tithe means a tenth. It's the giving a tenth of one's income to support the local church. And the tithe was commanded in Leviticus 27, 30 to 32, where God declared that a tenth of the people's annual proceeds was holy to the Lord. Now, the purpose of the tithe, yes, it was to provide for the Lord's ministry, but it was also intended to reflect the, the reality that everything we have belongs to the Lord. We don't give a tenth to the Lord because that's his, but no, it's, it's all from him. It's all to him. It's all for him, and we're reminded of that. Now, many Christians today assert that the Old Testament tithe does not apply to believers since it is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, and it is not explicitly commanded in the New Testament, although I will point out that Jesus was once asked to pay the temple tax, and he did pay the temple tax. But what is shown in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 16.2, is a mandate for systematic, regular, and proportional giving, which is what tithing entails. Systematic, proportional, regular giving. Here's 1 Corinthians 16.2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper for the collection of the church. And so the only question is whether or not the, tithe, uh, the Christian giving ought to be 10%. What we do know is it must be systematic, regular, and proportional. That's what the tithe was. So should it be 10%? Well, here, even those who deny the applicability of the Old Testament tithe will generally agree that the New Testament standard under the gospel ought not to be lower than was the case under the Old Testament law. That's how Paul reasons. He reasons in our givings from our greater privilege in Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians uh, 2, uh, 2, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's an emphasis on the greater blessing we have received. Now, recent surveys indicate that the average evangelical church member gives 2.5% of his or her income to the work of the church. And that number, frankly, is scandalously low, especially given the relative affluence of so many believers. It was because Judah's temple tax had not been brought in that Joash could not repair the Lord's temple. And it's because... I'm talking about evangelicalism as a whole, because members give so little of what the Lord has given to them, 
that churches are often so restricted in what they can do, in the ministries, the outreaches they can do. There's people who need to hear the gospel, but there's not money to hire somebody who's, who's, who's set aside to do that. There's often the buildings fall into disrepair. Uh, and in so many churches, the, the passionate pursuit of world missions languishes because the giving to support it is not there. Well, Christians should never look on God's command to give. We, we, we are to give because we're commanded to do so. But we're never to look upon it as a burdensome joy, a chore. It's a joy and a delight. A tithing brings discipline to our overall spending. It reminds us that what we possess has come from the Lord. And this is why studies show consistently that regular givers from the church on average carry significantly less consumer debt than those who do not regularly give to the church. When Christians experience financial troubles, one of their first commitments should be to give regularly to the Lord's work. And the Bible clearly states that when God's people trust him financially through their giving, the Lord provides a financial blessing. The prophet Malachi, we should be careful generalizing these statements completely. He, I admit that Malachi is addressing a particular time, a particular place, but he is reflecting a general biblical principle when he says this, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Put me to the test thereby, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down on you a blessing until there is no more need. Malachi 3, verse 10. Now, the point is not that we give in order to get. I was talking this morning about how paganism is a quid pro quo. You pull the lever and you get the goodies from God. If you're thinking that way, if we're thinking that way, we are missing the boat. No, rather we give because whatever part of the Lord that we commit to the Lord is an expression of faith. It's because we trust him. We're manifesting our faith in the Lord. And faith will prosper under God's blessing. Well, the people of Judah were first to give as God commanded, but second, they were to give as an act of worship to the Lord. And Jehoiada made the chest, which Joash commanded, and notice where he put it, outside the gate of the house of the Lord. Well, the parallel passage in Second Kings 12 says that the chest had a hole board in it. It was set beside the altar on the right side as one entered the house of the Lord. Now the idea is that people would give to the restoration of God's temple when they came to worship him. And throughout the Old Testament, financial support of God's work took place in the context of the gathered worship of Israel. Listen to Psalm 116, 17 to 19. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people in the courts of the house of the Lord. Giving took place in the place of worship, in the service of worship, because it is an act of worship. Now, our giving to the Lord is an act of worship because it is important. It's a, it is an important way to confess his lordship over our lives. It's a very significant way of showing our thanks to him. for all. This is the New Testament argument, our thanks for all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that many churches, I think, are fully justified in taking up the weekly offering during the worship service. I, I know that certainly post-COVID, I don't have the numbers, but I think most of our giving is online now. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's a reason we do the offering. Whether or not you're, I know there's some people in the church who take out their cell phones and when the plate goes by, they hit sins. 
I have no issues with that per se. We're manifesting that our giving is a part of our worship of the Lord. That's what's happening. We make clear the link between financial giving and our thanks and praise. Third, the success of Joash's building plan clearly reflects that the giving was willing and not under compulsion. We see here the willingness of the people to give freely. Look at verse 9. Proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, a servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And as a result, verse 10 The people came and they brought their tax and they dropped it into the church until they'd finished. And when the chest was full, it would be emptied and returned. Verse 11, thus they did. Day after day, they collected money in abundance. Now it's in this respect that while a church exists to do far more than collect offerings, you know, there's always cynical critics who say, it's just a fundraising scheme. I'll be honest with you all. There are more efficient ways to make money for everybody than the work of the church. I just want to be honest with you. No, it's a byproduct. It's not the product. It's not what we exist to do. We don't hound people for money because that's not what we are here to do. But nonetheless, the giving of a congregation provides a generally accurate gauge of the spirituality of the people and their commitment to the local work. I have to say, one of the great blessings of my 14 years as the pastor of this church is the way that the giving has consistently reflected a high level of spirituality and a high level of commitment to God's work. It is a real gauge. Think about when Moses was in the Exodus, back when he gathered the materials to make the original tabernacle and all the uniforms of Aaron, the high priest. They were able to do it because the people were willing to make these offerings. Listen to Exodus 35, 21 to 22. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and they brought to the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting, for all its service, for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women. All who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. Notice those of a willing heart. That was the That is a key element of Christian giving. That's how it should be in our churches today, especially when there are special needs or special opportunities that call for giving. There should be a willingness that motivates it. Now, since the giving to the Lord should be willing and not under compulsion, the best thing the church can do to increase giving is to preach the word of God faithfully and fervently. That's what we should do. We should exalt the grace of God in Christ. Why? Because in this way, people become fervent and they become spiritually mature. They start taking on a more biblical mind. They start judging their lives and their priorities in a more godly and biblical way. During one of his fundraising drives, the Apostle Paul urged the Corinthians to be willing, he put it this way, 2 Corinthians 8, 7, as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. He was talking about giving. Well, finally, Christians should give as God's word commands, as an act of worship to the Lord, willingly and not under compulsion, and then finally with a glad and joyful heart. And the chronicler celebrates the ready response of God's people to finance the temple restoration. Verse 10, and all the princes and all the people rejoiced. 
They rejoiced and they brought their tax and they dropped it into the chest until they had finished. Now this spirit of joy in our giving is what keeps our financial offerings from descending into a legalistic duty. It's what makes it an act of worship that brings the light to the heart of our God. Paul put it this way, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. There's willingness, not reluctantly or under compulsion. But then he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Well, how different the offerings of Christians to this church ought to be from the way that we pay our taxes to the government. I encourage you to pay your taxes. But when did you last read in the newspapers about crowds of taxpayers showing up, walking uphill, crowding around the office, waiting for it to open to submit their tax payments to the government? And I've never personally heard of it myself. Well, Christians give willfully, willingly, cheerfully because we love the Lord. and We want to see his gospel spread throughout the earth. Well, this record of fundraising for Joash's temple restoration shows not only the way the money was given, but also how it was taken and how it's put to use by faithful servants of the Lord. Now, first, the manner in which the king and the high priest handled the offering shows the vital importance that churches show full integrity in all their financial matters. We're going to see it here. Joash's chest is placed in the temples, and then the offering started pouring in. But verse 11 says, And whenever the chest was brought to the king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the high priest, of the chief priest, would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. This they did day after day and collected money in abundance. Now, tithes and offering have to be counted. They have to be deposited. Every effort has to be made to ensure that this is done faithfully. Notice that whenever Joash's chest was emptied, there were two officials on hand. Notice that one was from the crown, one was from the clergy. And you say, well, they didn't trust each other. No, they're just playing to win. I don't know if they trust each other or not. But, but it was right. There's accountability. There's oversight. There's not an opportunity. If we don't want to have malfeasance, we won't give an opportunity for malfeasance. Proper integrity and procedures to show that it is so. Both the king and the high priest had their representative and could ensure the honesty of the other. Now, in those days, most of the offerings were not given even in coins, but the there would be pieces of silver, pieces, little slivers of gold would be put in, jewels would be dropped in, that kind of thing. So there had to be a royal assayer who would determine the purity and the value of it. The silver and gold had to be melted down. The jewels had to be classified, all of that. Well, today our church finances may be more complicated. That means there has to be oversight of the church budget. There has to be financial management and a system for that and also for making payments. Also, the church may act and be seen to act with full integrity. How important it is that we do everything with full integrity and accountability. Now, it's interesting. The, the king's version of this, 2 Kings twelve fifteen, says that the person who actually paid the money to the workmen, from him they did not ask for an accounting, for they dwelt honestly. Well, at least in that case, care was taken to assure that the men who handled the finances had a strong reputation for integrity. This is a primary concern in the handling of this giving. Well, second, the money that was given was actually spent on the work for which it was solicited. 
Look at verse 12. The king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord, and they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord, and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. Now, to this end, most churches today prepare church budgets. You know, I, I, I suppose church budget time's not fun, but I don't really mind it. But the church budget is, it's a financial description of our ministry commitments. It's our ministry strategy with the money to support us, what, we're, what we want to do, what we think needs to be done, what, 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 what the priorities are. That's what the budget does. But, but it's important then that all this is overseen, that the money that is given actually accomplishes the work of the church it is supposed to be doing. That's what the, it is for. Now, uh, the people of Judah would therefore see the craftsmen busy at work. There were busy little beavers on the temple, and that motivated the people. And at that pace, no surprise, the restoration went forward with success. Verse 13, so those who were engaged in the work labored, and the repairing went forward in their hands, and they restored the house of God to its proper condition, and they strengthened it. Now, the workers that they hired showed such integrity and energy, this will make some of you very happy, they brought it in on time and under budget. Now, that's the gold standard, right? On time and under budget. As a result, there's money left over. What are you going to do with the, with the church surplus? Well, the answer is they put it to good use. Remember how the, the followers of Athaliah had made off with all the sacred vessels. Now there was money, and that money was used to replace them. Verse 14. It was used to make utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incenses and vessels of gold and silver. Now, churches today are often excited. I think we should be excited when the annual finances reveal a surplus. But notice that the money that was left for the temple was not then placed in a bank account to accrue interest. It was not invested in money-making schemes. It was then spent for the work of the ministry of the Lord. So it should be among us. Zealous Christian leaders today will not seek to store excessive amounts of cash. There's prudent reserves. I know all that. But our desire will be to put as much of it to work as we can. And when there's more than we need, there's good things for us to give it to. There's always the missions field. We had a few years ago, uh, we had a surplus, and one of the churches was a church in Peru that uh, our teenagers, actually I was with the teenagers, we we were working with many other churches, each doing a part of constructing this church at 12,000 feet in the Andes, the San Jose Church, and when I was there, we were laying the floor, others came in and laid the pillars, the walls went up, and they ran out of money, and there wasn't uh, any money for a roof, and the church couldn't meet. What a joy it was when our elders said this would be a good use of a surplus. And I think the money, I think my, the, my mind remembers $27,000. We sent a check and the roof went on and the people of God are worshiping. That, that's exciting. That is the kind of satisfaction we ought to have. Now, the, the, notice here that the financing of the church is not relying on financial schemes or real estate ventures. Rather, it's the giving of the people through the Holy Spirit who's inspiring them. And that takes place because the ministry is faithful. And then when there's opportunity to do more, what we see here by and large is that the surplus is put to work. Well, the statement that God's house was restored to its proper condition is actually a significant one. 
Because it actually conveys the idea that the restoration was conducted in accordance with the temple's original design. We might even translate it that way. It was restored according to the original design. Now, First Chronicles records how when David was first thinking about building the temple and he was making plans for it, the Lord actually provided his design, and the Lord revealed to David the, the layout of the temple, the physical layout, how it was all going to work. It was given by the Lord. First Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen. All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. David got architectural drawings from the Lord. I don't know what to say, but that's what it says. You see, it's the Lord's temple. Therefore, its layout, its whole design, its function was to reflect his purpose, his will, his gospel, not the ideas of men. And so for the temple to be restored, it must be conformed to God's original ideal. Now, that is a good word for the ministry of our churches. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so the apostles laid out the foundation, they, they planned the dimensions, as it were, of our church project in the writing of the New Testament. That's where we find the worship, the teaching, the means of ministry that are truly Christian, that God wants and blesses. And as we're restoring the church, we are to be conforming it to the apostolic pattern of worship, of teaching of ministry that is found in the New Testament. Church leaders, it's not enough for us to show integrity in how we handle the money. But we also must show spiritual integrity, apostolic integrity, by ensuring that the church, its worship, its teaching, its ministry, is all performed in careful obedience to the word of God. There's so many churches today who garner great enthusiasm from their people and often they have massive budgets and just great, huge and elaborate buildings, but they are not accomplishing the work that the Lord intends because it is their own counsel or the counsel of what is fashionable in the word. The worship is not according to the word. The teaching is not that of the word. The ministry is not taking place by, by the means given, by the ordinary means of grace. If we really want to build and restore churches for the work of Christ, it's his design that we will follow. Then it will be his church that we build and not our own. Well, the question is bound to be raised whether or not churches should devote as much attention to the building as Joash did in the Old Testament. Now, one answer is that there is a danger of so emphasizing the physical property of the church that its actual mission of spreading the gospel is neglected. I began my ministry in Philadelphia, and there were empty cathedrals of vast splendor. They had taken the money and not used it for ministry. They put it in the bank. The money was still in the bank. The building was immaculate, and there was nobody in it. And that is not what we're, that's not what we're to be thinking of. The outward appearance of a church often will bear little resemblance to its spiritual condition, especially when the biblical means of grace are neglected. Philip Ryken puts it this way, the Holy Spirit is no snob. He would just as soon enter the smallest chapel as the grandest cathedral, as long as the minister will preach a biblical sermon and the people will offer heartfelt worship. That is really true. More important than the splendor of our buildings is the state of our hearts as the worshipers inside. 
However, another answer points out that church buildings often are very important to the worship and ministry of the congregation. Christians should look on our church buildings with something like the earnest zeal that Joash showed for the temple. I think Andrew Stewart is right when he says the manner in which God's people give in order to maintain the buildings in which the Lord is worshipped makes a statement about the regard they have for him. That is true. Years ago, I served at a church where the elders decided to consider, I thought it was very helpful, they held a retreat to consider what would the ministry needs of that church be 100 years in the future. I said, let's think what, what, let's, let's do a visioning project for what will it look like in a hundred years and what do we have to do? One of the results was they said we concluded we need more real estate and actually bought some buildings at great expense that are already serving their needs very well. That kind of thinking was interesting, but at that very time, it was revealed that the copper on the roof of the grand old sanctuary, 170 year old sanctuary had been torn and a major section of it needed to be replaced. Well, two proposals were made. The first was for a patch-up job, and it would be relatively cheap, and it'd have to be redone in 10 or 12 years or so. But then a proposal came in for a new roof that was guaranteed to last 100 years, and it was really expensive. And I remember the debate when this was going on, when we were deciding what to do. Somebody stood up and said, you know, isn't it almost certainly that Jesus will have come back within 100 years? Aren't we wasting our money? And one of the wise elders stood up and said, well, you remember he was a carpenter. And when he returns and descends over Philadelphia, I'd like him to see a good roof on the house where his people are worshiping. It was the expensive one that we bought. It was the hundred-year roof as an expression of our devotion to the worship of the Lord in that place. Well, King Joash's Success in funding and restoring God's house of worship, this partnership between the high priest Jehoiada and the king, was something of a high point in the midst of a generally dark time for God's Old Testament people. And no doubt the chronicler, a couple of hundred years, 400 years later, he's recording this, hoping that the example would spur the same kind of zeal for his time, for forgiving and integrity and zeal for ministry. What about our time? Well, financial matters are hardly the most important matters in a faithful church, but they do reflect a spirit of praise and thanksgiving. They do result in ministry that is important for the life of God's people. And yet we should never forget that the ultimate aim for which all this work was performed in the temple, in the old house of the Lord, The the ultimate purpose is found at the end of verse 14. Let's look at the end of verse 14. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. You see, here was the chief function of the Old Testament temple. Together with the worship of God by his people, it was those sacrifices that pointed people forward to the gospel coming of Jesus Christ. That was what it was all about that the people would be directed in the types and the ceremonies and the sacrifices, that they would be directed in their faith to Jesus Christ, God's Son, that his gospel would be made known throughout the land. What were those ancient burnt offerings but pictures pointing forward to the one who came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? 
And so the best cause for which we can ever give as Christians and can ever spend as churches is the preaching of Jesus Christ and the spreading of the good news through faith in his name. The greatest gift the church will ever receive was offered by God through the person and work of his Son, our Lord and Savior. The greatest thanks we can ever show him and the true end result, the end cause for which we give and for which we receive and we administer all of these things is the preaching and the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is in the gathering of souls to Jesus through faith that his church, his church, ultimately is being built and expanded today. It was on the foundation of his message of good news that Jesus promised on that rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we thank you for a great opportunity to look at uh, practical matters from Second Chronicles. But Lord, there's great spiritual matters here as well. Uh, Father, tune our hearts really to sing thy praise. Give us a desire that, that whatever else our lives amount to, that we're, we're, we're taking a part in, in the spreading of the good news of Jesus so that people are learning and, and they're, 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 they're learning there's hope. There's love from God. There's salvation and forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. Make this our passion. But at the same time, Lord, give us a loving responsibility towards our building and our ministries and our budget. Oh, Lord, you love a cheerful giver. Make us cheerful givers. And we thank you for the way that you cheerfully gave us your son. We do all of this in his name. Amen.